I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2020. Coming up, an interview with Professor Jose Jimenez, who developed a model-estimated COVID-19 transmission by aerosols in indoor air. Last week, How on Earth team member Shelley Schlender talked about a way in which salmonella bacteria can evade our immune systems and even cause autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. Many disease-causing bacteria can get inside our cells. Then, once inside, they can hide from our immune system and reproduce, spreading the infection. Salmonella, a cause of serious foodborne infections, is one such intracellular bacterium. It also causes typhoid fever, which kills more than 100,000 people annually. But our cells have developed a range of defenses against intracellular bacteria. One of these strategies is for the infected cell to kill itself. This stops the reproduction and spread of the bacteria. The cell's death can also attract immune system cells, which further controls the infection. A team of Australian researchers investigated the roles of three different types of cell death. You can think of these as three different ways of committing suicide. The scientists used three different types of mice, each of which lacked a protein that was involved in only one of the types of cell suicide. When only one of the three forms of cell death was disabled, there was only a minor impact on how effectively salmonella infections were controlled. This shows that cells are not reliant on one specific system. However, when multiple cell death systems were disabled, the infection spread rapidly. These findings reveal a coordinated and flexible system that protects us from intracellular infections. What's more, this system is not reliant solely on the immune system. This research was published last week in the journal Immunity. Mars is getting a lot of love these days. There were four missions planned to go to Mars this year. Three of them launched in the past couple weeks, and the fourth will be delayed for two years. Why were so many missions scheduled to launch around the same time? Every 26 months, the position of Earth and Mars in their orbits are at their closest, such that the amount of time to reach Mars is at its minimum. And less time means fewer resources, such as fuel, and lower cost. The first in the recent series of Mars missions to launch is the United Arab Emirates spacecraft called HOPE, which was launched on July 19th from Japan. This is the first interplanetary mission ever developed by an Arab state, and its arrival at Mars next year will coincide with the nation's 50th anniversary. The mission's goals are to study the Martian atmosphere and climate, and there is a Colorado connection to this mission. The spacecraft was built and tested at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics facilities in Boulder. Next up was China's Tianwen-1 mission, which launched on July 23rd. Tianwen, which translates as Questions to Heaven, consists of an orbiter and a lander with a rover. The landing site is Utopia Planitia, 
the large plain in northern hemisphere of Mars, which was also the site for NASA's Viking 2 lander in 1976. The Tianwen-1 rover will spend about 90 Martian days studying the Martian surface with radar and perform chemical analyses of the soil. Meanwhile, the orbiter will make observations for the study of Martian geology, atmosphere, and space environment. And finally was the launch on July 30th of NASA's Mars 2020 mission, which is carrying a rover called Perseverance, which in turn is carrying a helicopter called Ingenuity. Yes, you heard that correctly, a helicopter. The Ingenuity helicopter is billed as a technology demonstration, which is a project to test a new capability for the first time. It weighs about four pounds and has four-foot-long carbon fiber rotor blades. It will be the first aircraft to attempt controlled flight on another planet. Because of the communication delay to send radio signals between Earth and Mars, flight controllers can't fly Ingenuity in real time, so the helicopter has to fly autonomously. Ingenuity and the Perseverance rover will land in the 28-mile-wide Jezero Crater, just north of the Martian equator. Research indicates that between 3 and 4 billion years ago, a river there flowed into a body of water the size of Lake Tahoe. The Perseverance science team believes this ancient river delta could have collected and preserved organic molecules and other potential signs of microbial life. The car-sized Perseverance rover is very similar but improved version of the Curiosity rover that currently is driving around on Mars. In addition to studying the geology and atmosphere of Mars, Perseverance will collect rock samples for return to Earth by a future mission. It will put samples in containers that will be placed in a drop-off location. Then, these samples will be picked up and returned to Earth by that future mission, which is still being planned by NASA and the European Space Agency. It is expected that the Perseverance mission will last at least one Mars year, which is about 687 Earth days. Another spacecraft, ExoMars, a joint mission between Russia and Europe, was supposed to join the Mars launch party this summer, but it suffered technical issues and delays, which were further impacted by travel restrictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So the ExoMars launch won't be until 2022. Meanwhile, the other three international Mars missions are on their way and will arrive at the Red Planet in February 2021. Yesterday I spoke with Professor Jose Jimenez a professor in the chemistry department here at CU in Boulder. His research background for over two decades has focused on detecting and measuring aerosols. Recently, he became involved in applying this expertise to the question of how the coronavirus is transmitted. He and his team have developed a model that predicts the likelihood of transmission of the virus from an infected person to other people in an indoor space. You can find links to the model and his work on the show website. Welcome to the show, Jose. 
you have recently been involved in some pretty groundbreaking work in terms of developing a model here at the University of Colorado in Boulder to allow you to predict the likelihood that someone in an indoor space can transmit the coronavirus. So can you give us a little detail in terms of why aerosols are likely to be involved in the transmission of the virus? And then why is this a controversial topic? Um, yeah, well, um, so the reason why we think, I mean, it has been shown that aerosols transmit some diseases and we think they're playing an important role uh, for COVID-19 um, relates to what we call respiratory particles. So it's well known uh, that when we exhale and especially if we talk and, and even more if we sing or we shout, there are particles that are coming out of us that were not coming in. So, and they're comprised of material uh, from our body. They either have saliva or respiratory fluid, which is basically the liquid that wets the inside of our trachea and our lungs and all that. You know, and, and as we exhale and as we breathe and as we talk, some little bits of that fluid can come out. And, you know, and this is like saliva or mucin, which is a protein and sodium chloride. And, but if a person is infected with a respiratory infection, some viruses may come out as part of those particles, right? Now, if someone else breathes, you know, then those particles float in the room. Some of them fall to the ground if they're very big, but the ones that we call aerosols, they stay floating around for a while. And if someone else breathes them in and they deposit on their lungs or they deposit on their nose, then that can lead to infection. And uh, that was the first part of your question. The second part is why is it controversial? Um, that, uh, that has been a very interesting learning process for me. Um, but basically there, uh, you know, I have to explain a little history briefly, but basically the field of uh, medical infectious diseases and epidemiology, public health, they have a mindset that transmitting any disease through the air is very, very, very difficult. And uh, that comes actually from, from the history in, you know, before Pasteur in the 1860s, there were these theories about disease and we didn't know about germs. And there was the theory of the miasmas that, you know, uh, bad air will bring disease and there wasn't much you could do to protect yourself and, and it was very scary. And then Pasteur in 1960s figures out that germs transmit all the infectious diseases and all these research starts to be made about, you know, this disease and that disease and how do the germs go from person A to person B? Do they go through the air? Do they go through water? Do they go through touching? And evidence accumulates. And in 1910, there is Charles Chapin, who's a, an American public health expert, who writes a book summarizing the evidence and he takes the position that transmission through the air is very, very, very difficult and partially reacting against miasmas, partially trying to get people to wash their hands. But anyway, that position that he articulated kind of changed the paradigm and became the default belief in the field of infectious disease transmission. And even though later in the 20th century, you know, as early as 1934, there were already demonstrations that this wasn't quite correct, there was very stiff resistance. And really only diseases that are extremely transmissible through the air, like measles and chickenpox, have been accepted as, as they can be transmitted through the air because they are so transmissible that it was, it could be demonstrated easily and the evidence was undeniable. And also tuberculosis, which can only be transmitted through the air. But for other diseases like the flu that we think goes 
partially goes through aerosols is, is still very controversial. So that's the framework in which this disease appears. And the people who are charged with uh, basically at WHO or similar organizations to decide, you know, how is this disease transmitted, have this bias. And then they want a very high level of evidence um, to accept that there is aerosol transmission, but they accept this transmission through the surfaces and through the large droplets, basically without hesitation. And what has been happening in the last few months is evidence has been accumulating and now the evidence that aerosols are transmitting the disease is much stronger than for the other routes. And yet the guidance is still that the other routes are the important ones. So that's why people like me have become like scientist activists kind of trying to get the word out and trying to get this changed. Right, because it makes a difference in terms of our responses to try to avoid the disease, right? Yes, and actually the, Something that, that's useful is everything that has been said so far is basically correct. We should wash our hands, we should wear a mask, you know, all these, all these things, you know, contact tracing, all, all the things that, that we've been doing or we've been trying to do are all useful. But there is a few more things that we can do that can make us more effective and smarter and can actually make some of the restrictions that are imposed on the population less stringent, you know, and at the same time be more effective at reducing the cases. So for example, once you know it's in the air, then you can think actually ventilation helps a lot and we can pay attention to, to increasing ventilation or we can use these portable HEPA filters that you can buy. Or actually we've been discussing, you use with a box fan and a, and a filter for $30, you can make yourself a HEPA filter and they actually work very well. There are studies on this. So we're trying to get the word out that you can, you know, that you can do many things. It also provides a better justification for the for masks you know i think part, part of the reason why people resist wearing masks at least some people is that they don't understand why if these droplets are falling why do i have to wear a mask and under which conditions do i have to wear a mask once you understand the aerosols and the analogy we use for aerosols is uh, cigarette smoke or for younger people i'm told vaping is a clear analogy so if you imagine someone who's smoking or is vaping and is exhaling the smoke you know, you, you have, those are aerosols, exactly. They don't fall to the ground, they float around and depending if it's windy, if it's indoors, you know, they do different things that we're used to seeing. And it's a very good analogy. So now we just have to think that that's basically what the virus is doing. And what you wanna do is not breathe other people's exhaled air. How to do that? Well, then you can, once you understand that, then you can think about your situation. You know, so being outdoors is much better than being indoors. Wearing a mask if you are near other people, and any time when you are indoors, it's a very good thing to do. Ventilation helps or air cleaners help because they remove those aerosols from the air. So that I think that um, that knowledge really can help us um, you know, be more targeted. And for example, there are things that have been forbidden in some places and maybe they still are. Like I was hearing last week in Chicago, the beaches were closed, by the, but the gyms were open. Right. That, that makes no sense. You know, the beach is far safer and, and people, you know, for mental health, we need to get out and, you know, this is being hard on everybody. So this gives us the guidance is like, actually, as long as you keep your distance and wear a mask, if there are a lot of people outdoors is, is pretty safe, you know. Exactly. And there's, there's so many multiple factors combining in the outdoor situation. Not only is there more space for dilution to occur, but the wind is blowing and there's ultraviolet light and all of these things act together. And I would guess somewhat synergistically, to reduce and even destroy the virus. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the the wind dilution dilution is by far the most important, but yeah, all of them all of them help. And uh, and we have very good evidence. I mean, I think the the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. I mean, people were also wearing masks, but really they didn't lead to super spreading events, uh, you know, very much. And on the other hand, we have now, I think, nine, at least nine, nine cases I know of, of choirs in which, you know, a huge number of people got sick and they were all in indoor spaces and they were singing, which is about the, without masks, which is about the worst thing you can do. Right. It's an aerosol generating procedure, like in medicine, you know. And you're projecting so much further. So you have a really nice illustration on one of your um, documents, which I will link to on our website, that shows kind of a cone of exhalation coming out of a person's mouth. And it disperses to a relatively um, dilute factor at about six feet, which is the social distancing um, measurement. But when you're singing or yelling, then it'll, it'll um, be much more concentrated for much greater distances. Yeah, that, that's an effect, but really the more important effect is that you just exhale many more respiratory particles, maybe a hundred times more. So right. that, so like when you are, you know, if you're breathing, uh, if I use relative numbers, so if you're breathing, you are putting maybe two units of these viruses in the air. If, you, if you're talking, maybe, you know, 20, 30, 40. If you are yelling, maybe 300, 400. If you're singing, maybe six, 700, you know, so, so it really changes enormously. Right, right. And so now that you've introduced these numbers, we can talk about your model, because Mm -hmm. this is a really cool way to estimate the transmissibility of the virus. You have this downloadable model into which people can put different parameters like, you know, what's the wind speed or how are you talking or are you breathing or are you singing and estimate what the concentration of viruses will be if someone who's doing that is infected. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I mean, and just a little more specifically, you can, what you can estimate is what's the chance that you're going to get infected if you are in the presence of someone infected or if you are in the presence of potentially in an area where there are cases, right? So right. the numbers, I mean, I have to say that the, um, that's something you can do. And I think that catches people's attention. What I have to say is that the accuracy, you know, if it says the chance of transmission in a given situation is 1%, People have to take that with a big grain of salt. It may be 5%, maybe 10%, or it may be 0.1%. We think we're getting kind of the order of magnitude, but not the precise amount. But the result that's really useful, what's what's actually much more accurate is like, okay, you have a certain risk. And now you you do these things, you have half the people, half the duration. Now we all wear masks and we increase the ventilation. And the chance of transmission now is, is a seventh of what it was before. That seventh or whatever it is, we know actually very well. Right, right. So can you talk a little bit about the range of particle sizes? Because we've been talking about masks, how masks help. And I know one thing that I get asked a lot is, are masks really effective at preventing the spread of virus? Because virus particles are so small and the weave size in so many masks is larger than the virus particles. But I'm thinking that based on what you said of aerosols, that there's a range of aerosol sizes. So a lot of those aerosols will be big enough to get stopped by various masks. Yes, and, and there's actually two different misconceptions on what you said, okay, that, that uh, get people to their own conclusions. Masks are very effective. It depends on the mask, and I'll say a few more things later, but masks are, are very effective. Um, 
why, well, the first one, the first misconception is, yeah, the virus is la, la, about a tenth of a micron, but there is no process that, that can take a virus that's dissolved in, in the fluid in your lungs and, and get only the virus out, right? right. What's gonna happen is that you are gonna make these particles, which are gonna be may, maybe a micron, and then of that one micron particle, 0.1% of that particle is a virus, and 99.9% .9 is, you know, mucin, water, sodium chloride, you know. Right. So then the particles are much bigger. And this, the, these big particles, so the small particles are scarier because they're harder to filter and all that. The bigger particles are clumsy, you know. It's like mm. w when you compare uh, a particle the size of the virus, it's like a squirrel. A one micron particle is an elephant. Now imagine that those, those two come towards a mask, you know, the elephant right, is gonna have right. trouble getting out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> the second misconception is that if you wanna use a filter, you need to have pores smaller than what you wanna filter for the air. People, I think people are thinking of the experience they have with a sieve. And if you wanna sieve rocks, the right. holes, you know, the rocks that go through are the ones that are smaller. That's not how filtration works in the air with these small particles. The, uh, the filters like the ones you use in your house for the air conditioning that get very dirty and th therefore they're catching a lot of particles. The holes are actually bigger than the particles, but there are processes of diffusion and impaction and, and Van der Waals forces and basically the, the details of aerosol physics that we study that make filters very effective even if the holes are bigger than the particles. And also the particles are bigger than what people think. So actually masks, masks are quite useful. Right. So that's all really good information. I'm glad that you clarified that. So one I, other thing that I, oh, sorry, go ahead. If I could add two things, because I just don't, I want to make sure I don't forget them because they're very important about masks. Uh, there are two things that are very important. One is the fit. You know, if you are, right. if you wear a mask used because you are trying to protect against these ballistic projectiles, this, this spit for to call it from some comment, then a mask that use is on in front of your face is sufficient. But if you're trying to protect against these aerosols, you need the mask to fit well, you know? And, and some of these people are wearing an N95 or some, and, but, they, but you could put a finger around their face and they really are not using it well. On the other hand, I see people wearing a cloth mask and whatever, and it's very tight, very well fitted on their face. And those people are better protected. And there is a video that I have linked and, and you should also put the link on the description that shows that very well and i think okay. everyone should pay attention to the to the fit the other right. thing that's really important is whoever is talking is the person who is most important to wear the mask so even tony fauci gets this wrong he goes to congress and he removes the mask to talk and i mm. you know we, we may talk to fauci in the next few days and <laughs> first thing i'm gonna tell him is like tony you really <laughs> right right for example because really the person who's talking especially if they are talking loudly or whatever they are really expelling 10, 20, 30 times more respiratory particles than the people who are breathing and listening. So really we, whoever is talking should keep the mask on. That's really important. Right, that's a really good point. Thank you for adding that. So one thing that I wanted you to talk a little bit about that I found fascinating from one of your diagrams is that tall people are more at risk of being exposed to these aerosols when they're in a room with someone who's infected. Yeah, so that's something that, yeah, that we've been discussing recently, and it was, it, it was known, uh, it, it wasn't known by me until last week, but, but then we found some publications. 
because basically what's going on is the air that we exhale um, is warm. And most of the time we're in a room that's cooler, so warm air rises. So at the beginning when you exhale is what we call a jet. The air comes with a certain speed and it goes straight. But then as it encounters the air around it, it slows down, it slows down, but it's still warm and then it starts to rise. So it has this curved trajectory. So a, a short person talking with a tall person is gonna, the transmission through aerosols is gonna be, go much better from short to tall than from tall to short, right? Right. And um, the data about whether the transmission really does that is, there is some suggestive data from the UK, but, but is, um, is not very clear yet, but it, but it certainly is what we would expect to happen. Right, right. So in terms of um, other unknown factors that you would like to clarify, what are some of those in terms of adding to your model and clarifying transmissibility of the virus by aerosols? Mm. I mean, I think I would like to emphasize the, the known factors, which, mm -hmm. are, which are the things we should avoid. Right, so we should keep hand washing and all that and, and social distance. But right, right. one of the new things that emerge more clearly is like we should avoid or minimize being indoors, especially if there is a lot of people, especially if there is low ventilation, especially if people are, are talking or shouting or whatever, and if people are not wearing masks. And I think I, I always forget one. But anyway, those are the, <laughs> those are the the, the main thing. So the, the more things, the more checks you have on that list, the higher right. the chance of transmission for a, for an event, you know. Right. You can do things the opposite. You can do as much as possible outdoors with masks and uh, on a windy day, you know, suddenly your chances, you know, people, people want to know, you know, I get this question a lot. If I do X, is my risk zero? Am I totally safe? And what I have to say is like, you're never totally safe, but you can be very safe, you know? And we, one of the things we do in the, in the model, you know, because we kept getting that question is, so we try to compare the risk of a situation with the risk of car accidents. So imagine, let's say you're going to do a certain activity and you're gonna do it, um, you know, 30 times between now and, and the end of the year, and you're gonna drive to that activity. So you, you are accepting a risk of dying on the car accident. Like sure. how much more is the risk of dying because of COVID or is it similar? You know, for some activities it's similar or actually the risk of a car accident is larger. You know, so in those cases, you say, okay, this, is, this doesn't seem like a big risk. In other cases, the risk is, you know, if, if, you, if you say we're gonna sing, sing indoors without masks, then the risk is 10,000 times larger than a car accident, right? So. Right, right. I think that's really useful in terms of giving people food for thought in terms of structuring their activities. And unfortunately we're out of town time, so we'll have to leave it there. I will link to these um, different sites and your Twitter thread. There's lots of information online. And thank you so much for talking today, Jose. Okay, thank you very much for your time. That was Professor Jose Jimenez, research faculty here at CU in Boulder. His research in detecting and measuring aerosols gave him important background relevant to the issue of how the coronavirus is passed from person to person. The model developed by him and his team lets you predict the likelihood that the virus can be transmitted from an infected person to other people in an indoor space. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. 
I produced this week's show remotely and Maeve Conran engineered in the studio. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Lola and Hauser playing Ludwig von Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, 250 years after his birth. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.